here today. I've got a question for you to think about. If you could ask God for one thing before you leave today, what would it be? Just one thing from God before we're done, before I'm done. I'm not telling you how long that is. <laughs> what would it be? There's, a, of course, a familiar, uh, probably familiar to you, formula for understanding prayer. It says, goes, goes like this, that uh, God always answers prayer. He answers in one of three ways. He says yes or no or wait, right? And I think that's a, that's a helpful formula for understanding that God always, always has an answer. And I, and I kind of like it. It's, it's useful. But it doesn't tell us much about God's attitude. I mean, is there a reluctance behind some of that yes or wait or no? You know, I'm not sure what it sounds like in our own minds when we say God says yes, no, or wait. Consider this passage. In, in uh, Matthew 7, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. It sounds a lot more like yes to me than the no or the wait, doesn't it? It just sounds kind of like a yes. Jesus goes on, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? The logic here is really straightforward and easy to grasp. Even imperfect parents know how to give their children gifts and take care of them. So, therefore, what do you think God the Father is like? He says he's, he's great at giving In fact, God, his quality as a giver far exceeds your ability to ask. That's how good he is at it. So today as we walk through another story in Luke, I want to suggest a little different prayer formula. I'm not saying the other is wrong, just just an alternate view. And that is that when, when you ask something of God, he gives you one of two answers. I like two better than three anyway. It's simpler. My mind can grasp it easier. When you ask something of God, he gives you one of two answers. Either he gives you more than you ask, or he gives you something better than you ask. We'll see that in our story today. Jesus illustrates it, and we start off with a man named Jairus, and he is going to ask something of Jesus. We start and we see that on the, the, the other side of the lake from last weekend, was possibly the other side of the lake from this morning and in terms of Jesus' clock. The other side of the lake, the crowds welcomed Jesus because they had been waiting for him. Remember last week, uh, if you were here, Jesus had sailed overnight through a storm, calmed that, encouraged the disciples, stepped foot on shore, did a miracle. The people didn't like the implications. The, the power scared him. They asked him to leave. He got back in the boat, sailed back across. Now, while on, on one side of the lake, the people were scared of him, on this side, they were waiting. They're excited. People were like, yeah, I want to see miracles. I love to see power. Let's, let's do some more of that. So there's a crowd waiting for him. And in that crowd, there's a man named Jairus, a leader of the local synagogue. He came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come home with him. His only daughter, who was about 12 years old, was dying. Jairus is someone who perhaps is a, 
as unlikely to be seen at the feet of Jesus as maybe anyone. He's an important man. He has an influential spiritual role. It says he's the the leader or a leader of the local synagogue. And you might think of this as somewhere, you know, like a a combination between Pastor Phil and Pastor Bob. He, He plans the gatherings at the synagogue. He decides, you know, who's leading and speaking and who's reading the scripture and all that kind of stuff. And so he's a he's a man of prestige and and some power. He he probably had witnessed some of Jesus' miracles. He, he'd certainly heard about them because here he is. He's also waiting at the shore for Jesus. But remember as well, he's a, he's a part of a, a religious establishment, a group of people who have an increasingly negative view of who Jesus is. And here is what he asks. I don't want my daughter to have to die. Don't let my daughter die. And of course... He's coming in desperation. You know, I don't think, it doesn't look like he's thinking about what he looks like, right? He throws himself at Jesus' feet as we've been thinking about in this service already. It's not something we, we tend to do. We go around and throwing ourselves at people's feet. We, th- we tend to think, no, 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 that would be the last thing I'd want to do. He throws himself. He's in desperation. He's not thinking about his reputation. Furthermore, I, I doubt he's thinking of the potential conflict he might have with his boss, with his superiors, or the group of Pharisees, or or whoever is over him in terms of leading a synagogue. These people who who are not liking Jesus so much, (laughs) and who will eventually plot his death. He he's doing what so many of us do when we're in desperation. We've got those, those concerns, those questions, but, but we say to ourselves really quickly and casually, I'll worry about that later. <laughs> I'll worry about that later. I'll try and figure that out later. When we see someone at a point of desperation, I, I, I think of that person as being in a place where, where their life is either going to get a lot better or a lot worse. That's what desperation does to us. It puts us in a place where we have to make really hard choices, and life is about to get a lot better or a lot worse, depending on where you turn. And Jairus turned to the right person in the right place at the right time. Jesus went with him. See, there's the first miracle in our story, if you put yourself into Jairus's place and you see that Jesus is going to go with you, you understand, wait a minute, the, the Son of God, the, the Creator, the Sustainer of the universe, the, the, the Messiah, our, our Savior, He's going to go with you. What an amazing thing. Really? And, and, of course, the first thing I think of is, I wonder if this was an interruption, right? What, what, where was Jesus headed until Jairus came up and asked this question? Now, I can't prove this for sure, but here's what I would speculate. Jesus had a plan over about 24 hours. If, if these events really are back-to-back as they appear to be, 
<laughs> Jesus had, check this out, for an agenda for 24 hours. He's like, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get disciples. We're going to go in the boat. We're going to cross the lake, run into a storm. We'll calm the storm, encourage their faith, strengthen their faith. I'll step on shore. I'll, I'll heal a man. I'll, I'll be rejected, but I'll leave behind one very, one very highly motivated missionary on that shore. I'll, I'll, I'll sail back across the lake. I'll step into a crowd, and I'll go to Jairus' house. <laughs> what a plan. That's his 24 hours. You see, what we see in this is that Jesus goes with him. He's eager. And the point for us, we'll start building this point through the, throughout the story in the first part, is that Jesus wants to give. He wants to give. He wants to go. Jairus didn't have to, like, plead or, or you know, give a special offering or, you know, give up something. Jesus wanted to go. And he wants to give. Have you ever uh, misjudged someone's motives? You know, you had a friend or a family member or someone, and you kind of, you misjudged their motives, right? And then sometime later, a month later, years later, you find out you were wrong, right? And then you look at at the way you related with that individual during that time frame, and you'll see that it was kind of messed up, Right? See, thinking anything less of Jesus' character than that he wants to hear from you and help you and give to you is going to mess with your understanding of who he is. He wants to give. Jairus has asked, don't let my daughter die. That's what I ask. And now we see a woman enter the story. And she seeks something from Jesus as well. Luke says, A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding, and she could find no cure. Coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe. Immediately, the bleeding stopped. Now, this woman had an illness. She had a chronic hemorrhage, and according to Old Testament or or Old Covenant law, specifically the book of Leviticus, she had been unclean this entire time. She had been uh, separate from society, unclean, unable to worship, participate. You know, you think about churches today, and we, we put out signs sometimes, all are welcome. You've seen churches that say that, all are welcome. It's <laughs> not what they did back then in synagogue or the temple. Not all are welcome. Not all are welcome. Only the clean are welcome. And she had been on the outside. And here's what she sought. She sought healing obviously, but, but kind of a, a magical, physical cure while remaining obscure and hidden. Notice that? Now we have Jairus and we have this woman, a people as different as you could possibly imagine. He's a prominent leader. She's an unknown to us. In fact, do you, do you notice? Luke won't even give us her name. We don't know who she is. He's a prestigious, he has a prestigious spiritual role in his community. She has been perpetually spiritually unclean. He lives and moves and works in the center of the the life of that community. She lives on the edges, outside the borders of the community. He brings a, a family concern. She brings a problem that she has faced and is facing alone. He comes out of desperation that he might lose 12 years of joy. 
She comes out of desperation that 12 years of suffering might become 13 years. They're as different as you could possibly be. And so in these two people, I I see a, a spectrum of humanity. And here's the good news in that for you and I. I'm just telling you, you've got to be somewhere in between. See, not only does Jesus want to give, he wants to give to you, right? Maybe you're Jairus, maybe you're the woman, probably you're somewhere in between the spectrum, the great spectrum of humanity, somewhere in there is your life. And Jesus wants to give to you, to you. That's good news. Psalm 145 says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. If you call on Jesus, sincerely wanting the help that he wants to bring to your life, (laughs) that's a great promise. He says, I'll be near. I'll come to your house. I'll come to your work. I'll come into your relationship. I'll come into your job, your finances, your friendships, your church. I'll be near. So the woman seeks a magical cure. Let's see what she finds. Let's see what she finds. She's physically healed, but there's more. Who touched me? Jesus asked. Who touched me? I know it wasn't like this, but it just makes me think of, you know, like having kids and driving the van and you're on vacation and you hear from the back. He touched me like it was the great sin of the world. You know, who touched me? I know, it wasn't like that. But anyway, that's what goes through my mind. Who touched me, Jesus asked. Everyone denied it. And Peter said, Master, this whole crowd is pressing up against you. But Jesus said, Someone deliberately touched me, for I felt healing power go out from me. When the woman realized that she could not stay hidden, she began to tremble. This was not her plan. And, and she fell to her knees in front of him. And the whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and that she had been immediately healed. Just imagine if Jesus could speak one sentence to your, to your life. <laughs> What he can do in one sentence is astounding. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. One sentence. Now, maybe it's a summary from Luke. I I don't know, but that is one of the most beautiful things you could ever hear in your life. Now, Who touched me? Jesus knows what's going on. Let's just face it. He knows what's going on. See, here would be the point of him, uh, of understanding that. See, we need to believe and understand that his power, God's power, is never some impersonal force. In fact, Jesus is just absolutely unwilling for it to try to be used that way. I'm not going to let let you just try and grab some power. It's never some impersonal force. And in one story, and in one moment, Jesus refutes one of 
one of the, the longest-lasting philosophies through generations, and that is deism. The idea, the notion that God is an impersonal force that sets things in motion and then steps back and goes, oh, I wonder what will happen. He's like, no. In fact, I'm not going to let you have my power. I'm not going to be some impersonal thing. I, I won't even participate in that. He's not going to do it. The woman has received physical healing. But for Jesus, you see, he's like, that is not enough. He wants to give her so much more. So he presses the issue to expose her. That is not what she wanted. He forces her hand so that he could give her so much more than what she sought. And so we have a little more of our idea today. Jesus wants to give you more than you seek. He wants to give you more than you seek. And we need to believe that's on his heart. Here's this woman. She finds physical healing. But think about some of her other problems and and the great treasure she walks away with. First of all, she'd been isolated, right? We, we know that because of her, her status, her, her kind of legal, spiritual status as, as being someone who was unclean. And Jesus forces the issue and says, no, 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 no. You come and you tell your story. I want everyone here in this crowd, I want you to hear this woman's story, what she did, and I want you to hear it. Do you understand what he's doing? He's saying, no, everyone needs to know about this. You can't have have this little private healing and then keep it to yourself. I want everyone to hear because this is your chance. I'm going to affirm that it's real and everyone's going to hear it. And now you have the opportunity to immediately re-enter this community. To be accepted by these people. He's kind of going Billy Graham on them. And be sure and be in church this Sunday, right? He's like, I want to... This, this happened to her. I'm going to have her tell her story, and I'm going to look you all in the face, and he's basically saying, and I want to see you sitting next to her this Sabbath in synagogue. Right? This is done with. She's healed. You embrace her. What a great thing. She would have completely missed it if she'd had her way, her little tiny prayer, her little thing she sought. But she had other problems. Uh, Apparently, she felt unworthy to speak to Jesus or to tell anyone else. I think because it would make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? Living 12 years as an outcast, it's got to mess with your mind. So Jesus gives her an experience of talking to him, of relating to him, and she calls her daughter. It's not recorded anywhere else that he called anyone else daughter. He... he, He probably did, but here he is. Daughter, I want you to go away no longer feeling unworthy. I want you to be convinced that you are accepted and loved by God. You've got to know this, my daughter. My daughter. What a great thing. She has another problem. She has a a vastly imperfect faith. She's superstitious. Her faith is superstitious. There's this, that, that weird thing about grabbing his robe. That wasn't it. And you see that sometimes in, in the Bible. You got the thing about Peter's shadow. Like, that's a superstitious kind of faith. It's a, it's a, it's a small kind of faith. She had a, a selfish kind of faith. She was uh, 
She was willing to make others unclean. She knew it, but she wasn't going to tell anyone. And remember the picture of the crowd? They're all bumping up against Jesus. So she's bumping through other people. Oh, sorry, you're unclean. You're unclean. I don't know. I just got to go get this. I got to get healing. And she's willing to touch Jesus. She's willing to make him unclean. Sorry, you got this power, but you're going to have to pay that. I need it. That's what she should assume. She has a faith that's weak. It's a hit-and-run power grab. It's all all I'm going to take from you. And so Jesus speaks to that. And he, he does what, I don't know, none of us would do. He, he begins to, to uh, reshape her faith, but he emboldens her faith. He says, your faith has saved you. This weak, puny, not well-informed faith has saved you. But you see, imperfect faith, as it was, it was sincere and it was effective. Now we need to understand, of course, that her faith was not the power. Jesus has been really clear about that. Her faith didn't have any power, right? Jesus was the power. He, he, he said, he told everyone, wait a second, I felt the power. It was my power. My power left me. I could feel it. <laughs> I know what my power does. It's a personal thing. I could feel that. Her faith wasn't the power. Jesus was the power. Her faith was how she accessed Jesus' power. And it's always that way with God. You know, when uh, Paul wrote Ephesians chapter 2 and he said that we are saved by grace through faith, he wasn't just coining a really clever thing so we could have nice bookmarks in our Bibles. Right? That, that's a foundational understanding of relating to God. It's always, always that way. God's grace is the power. Our faith merely gives us access to the power. It's never anything we do. It's Jesus. But you can't access what Jesus does without faith, without coming to him. And that's the part she did right. That's what she did right. She went to Jesus and now, while she started with a, with a simple, imperfect faith, she's having her faith strengthened and refined. She's being taught by Jesus himself. And she goes away stronger in her faith. And then, of course, she was fearful. There are, for lots of reasons, probably, but none other than, you know, she's unclean and she's trying to keep that a secret and she's bumping through people. What if, what if the crowd, what if Jesus knew she was unclean, right? Wouldn't that be a way to turn a crowd into a mob? I would think so. And so Jesus leaves her with a blessing of peace. Go in peace. It's as if to say, you know what, now that you've been, now that I've had you come forward and tell your story and I've affirmed your healing and, I, and I've encouraged you and, I, and I've refined your faith, you can go in peace. In fact, why don't you go out and, and, and have some fun on, on your way? Why don't you get some hugs from some friends you haven't touched in 12 years? Why don't you go over and kiss that baby over there? Then the mom wouldn't let you near it in the past. Go kiss a baby for the first time in 12 years. Maybe she'll, she'll let you hold that, that baby. Why don't you meet a few people and shake a few hands on your way? Why don't you join these people and go in peace? Wow. The woman sought a little physical healing, and what she found was so, so much more. So much more.
amazing. All right, now, how about Jairus? <laughs> We've left him alone for a while. Poor guy, right? What a tough place to be while all this is happening. See, while Jesus was still speaking to her, a messenger arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, and he told him, your daughter is dead. There's, there's no use troubling the teacher now. She's dead. Now, the, the woman received what she sought and even more, but Jairus would not receive what he asked. He wanted his daughter not to have to die, and he didn't get it. And so, just in this moment, I know lots of you looking at the notes, you can see the end of the story, you know the end of the story, but, but be Jairus in verse 49, just in verse 49, in that heartbeat, in that thought, in that moment, your daughter is dead. What does he experience? Of course, bewilderment and pain and grief. It shoots through him like arrows, doesn't it? And, and, and more, I would think. Humanly speaking, think about what he has experienced in the last 10 minutes, 30 minutes, I don't know how long. Jesus is going to come to my house. And then who's this woman? And what's this conversation? And what are we doing here? Frustration and anger. Consider what the woman is to Jairus inside of verse 49. See, Luke doesn't say it explicitly, but, but the point is really obvious. This woman is the delay that resulted in his daughter's death. That's the kind of stuff that makes us angry. And despair grows deeper. Fortunately, there's a verse 50. Jesus heard what had happened. And he said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Make a choice here. Not easy. Make a choice. Choose not to be afraid. Choose to have faith, and she'll be healed. And so, for the first time, we begin to understand that, that this day will be about more than Jairus' daughter, about more than her health or her physical life or the length of her physical life. This day will also be about Jairus and his faith. We begin to see that maybe he will receive something better than he asked. So again, consider what the woman is to Jairus at this moment within verse 50. Oh yes, she's still, she's still the result of his daughter's death. But she's also something else. She is the proof. She is a demonstration that Jairus turned to the right person. That he has the power to encourage and strengthen his faith and to meet his needs and to answer his prayers and to do what he asks. Now, that's a dilemma. This woman to Jairus in this moment is some vastly different things. But I think he'll understand eventually. See, Jesus wants, wants to give you more than you seek and something better than you ask. See, the woman's story 
is not just a demonstration of power. It's a demonstration that Jesus' power is a compassionate power. It's a part of his character. It flows from in him. It's personal to him. Now think about it for a moment. If Jesus does what we might instinctively first do, he passes her by. What if Jesus does pass her by? He says, well, you know what? I made a promise to Jairus. We're going there. His daughter's dying. I know there's a lot of other things going on here, but sorry, woman, stay away from me. We're getting there first. I made that promise first. I mean, that's our logic, right? You do what you, prom- you, know, you, do what you promise first, and you get on with that, and you put, get through traffic. But if Jesus passes her by, think about this. If Jesus passes the woman by, is Jesus really what Jairus needs? I would suggest not. He actually isn't. We experience this kind of tension with God ourselves, and it's complex. I was explaining it last night and realized, good luck trying to follow this. Oh, okay, so we're wrestling with the character of God, and this is hard to do. The comprehensive nature of God's attributes, that is, what he is to us, he is to everywhere at the same time to everyone, right? And, and that gets complicated, from our perspective. <laughs> Not for God, of course, but for us. Here's, a, here's an example. Let's take patience, the patience of God. Second Peter 3 gives us a, some things about God's patience in a couple different verses. It says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. You see, it can feel like that to us, but it's not really true. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Verse 15, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. So there's a lot of layers of patience here, a lot of different kind of applications or things going on. First of all, there's patience, the patience of God delaying Christ's return, right? God's patient, so he's not letting Jesus come back quite yet, obviously, not at least to this moment, and still not, right? But that delay, you see, delays also the fulfillment of all of God's promises to us. You understand that if, if you have trusted Christ, you've received salvation, but, but you've only just begun to taste a hint of all that's involved with your salvation. And, and it won't become full until you're in his presence forever, and Christ's return initiates, well, it opens the floodgate floodgate in terms of all that God has promised. But God's patience has delayed that. So in the meantime, we live and continue to live in a world filled with sin and pain and hurt and and daughters who die and women who are sick and on it goes. But then you see that he has patience for others so that they might be saved. Right? That's, That's what that patience is about. And so what we see is that Christ hasn't returned yet because God is patient with some people who aren't here this morning. You know who they are. (laughs) They're in your life. They live around you, right? He's being patient with them. Jesus is not returning yet so that they might be saved. But we pay for it. That's kind of our response. We're, We're paying for that. In the meantime, we're waiting, right? 
But then, but then we need to take that back to what we experience, and that is we understand those people around us that God is being patient with, that's the patience that we required before we accepted Christ. And other people had to wait around for us, right? We were dependent on that patience. So what is it these people should be to us that God is being patient for? Something that makes us wait? No, no, not exactly. A demonstration that God's patience is genuine. It's a part of his heart. You can count on it because it, it, it's expressed to everyone. And therefore, when he was patient with me, it was the real deal. We could talk about this in the same way with God's love. We, we enjoy God's love, but then he turns around and loves our enemies. And it's easy for us to not enjoy that so much or to have a problem with that. But you see, what we should be thinking is that's a, that's a wonderful thing. Because if, if what did Jesus say? Anyone can love their friends. In fact, everyone does love their friends. When you, when you really want to prove something, love your enemies. God, God loves his enemies. See, and when we see him love people that we've had a problem with, that should, while it can be hard, it should make us go, Wow, that love of God, that is the real deal. And therefore, it's real to me. It's a demonstration of his love and the genuineness of his love for me when he loves others. We rely on God's forgiveness, but then sometimes we become a little, a little bitter, and then he goes, and, and God forgives people that we're angry with, and, and, and we're not maybe happy with that. What we should be thinking is, wow, see, God will forgive them as well. That means when, he, when I understood that he forgave me, that was the real deal. So I rejoice in that. I'm strengthened by that. We can experience some of God's char- characteristics as, as negative if we want to, but the reality is they're demonstrations that what we receive from God is exactly what he wants to give. Patience and forgiveness and love. All right, back to the story. Enough of a detour. When they arrived at the house, Jesus wouldn't let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, James, and the little girl's father and mother. The house was filled with people weeping and wailing, but he said, stop the weeping. She isn't dead. She's only asleep. But the crowd laughed at him because they all knew she had died. Now, we see the, the professional mourners here, and uh, we've seen them before in the book of Luke. Here they are again, maybe not the same ones exactly, but we kind of see that going on. And, uh, and Jesus says she isn't dead. Now, some people have taken that and tried to build a theology off that about the experience of people who have died. And that's a big mistake. You don't want to do that. There are much more clear passages about what happens to us when, when we die. Paul was very, very clear. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's not like sleeping. What he's talking about really has more to do with himself than the girl. He's saying, hey, you know what? Listen, to me, death is no more of a challenge than sleep is. Right? Watch this. <laughs> Watch this. And, and he took her by the hand and said in a loud voice, My child, get up! And at that moment, her life returned, and she immediately stood up, and Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were overwhelmed, but Jesus insisted that they not tell anyone what had happened. And Jesus says, let's start at the end here. 
Jesus says, don't tell. Now, this would be confusing because a few hours ago, he was across the lake, and he, he freed someone from demons, and he said, now go tell everyone. And he tells his parents, don't tell anyone. What's going on? Probably several things, maybe a little bit of all of these things. Uh, some of the things that, that theologians have uh, speculated, that he may be just doing crowd control. Remember, there weren't any crowds on the other side. The crowd didn't like him. Here, the crowds are pressing in on him. He's just doing crowd control. You know, like, I can't, I, I, I've got to manage things so there aren't riots around here. And, and, you know, just we don't need to tell everything that happened that may be going on. Some, some uh, believe, and that's probably true, some believe he's just trying to manage divinely appointed events. You know, like, I'm not going to let people rush me and try and make me king. I've got a day that I'm going to Jerusalem. Uh, God the Father has things planned. It's going to be in its order, and let's just keep a wrap on things. I know what I'm doing. Trust me. And I think, quite frankly, um, Jesus just isn't good at modern PR, right? He's just, like, protecting the life of this girl. You know, uh, what would we do? Like the cover of every magazine, let's get her on Good Morning America tomorrow morning, right? Can we get her? Can we get a satellite link hook up here? Because we need to, everyone needs to see her, and this is going viral, and I know we can make some bucks off this. <laughs> Jesus is like, you know what? I, I restored her life so she can be a, a little girl. Let her be a little, give her some food and let her go play. That's what I did it for. I'm not going to go use her. I don't need to use her story and use her life. I gave her her life so she could have her life. (laughs) I don't know. I think that's part of what's going on. But notice he takes her hand. Now, does he need to do that? No. Last chapter. Centurion. Servant is sick. Says, Jesus, you don't need to come. Jesus is like, you're right. I don't. So she's healed. (laughs) He doesn't have to take her hand, but... Luke makes a point of it, particularly in this passage. See, because, and and we don't have time, but but the whole sermon could have been about this, but there's this theme been developing about this concern about Jesus and the Sabbath and the the law, and there's this concern now, now he's been touched by a, a woman with bleeding problems and, and he's touched a dead body and, and you don't do those kinds of things because that makes you unclean and yet not with Jesus. Luke's pointing out that what you expect to happen doesn't happen. In fact, the reverse happens. Unclean things don't make him unclean. He makes unclean things clean. When something's broken, he heals it. He restores it. He makes it whole. He makes it holy. His touch is the real power. And with the ease that you have of just waking up a child in the morning, he says, get up. Get up. And so in a a whirlwind of stories, I just can't imagine being a disciple at this point. I'm like, Jesus, I need a day off, right? I need a day off after this last 24 hours. But in these three stories in this chapter, to a storm, Jesus has said, be still. And to a demon, he said, be gone. And to a dead girl, he said, get up. And Luke is making the point without saying it that is so clear. Jesus can do anything. Look at this. One day, one day, look at what he's done. Jesus can do anything. 
And he has had other people within his stories ask the question, but he's hoping, I think his readers at this point will be asking the same question. Who is this? And at this point, I think he's expecting you to come to a right conclusion. Look at what he's done today. Who do you think he is? Come on, who do you think he is? And in the next chapter, he will begin to give us some decisive, clear answers spoken, first of all, from the mouth of Peter, no less. And we'll be getting to that in the next chapter. But who do you think he is? Jairus. Let's be honest, he didn't get what he asked. He didn't want his daughter to die. He didn't want her to experience that. He didn't want to ever hear the words, your daughter is dead. And I understand it, it, it didn't last that long. And, and sometimes we hear things and we know that that's going to be an enduring thing for months or years or the rest of our life. But, but he was there. He was there in that pain and frustration. And yet, Understand as well that Jairus received something so much better than what he asked for. He was able to move from a place of just having a little sliver of desperate, desperate hope to walking in places of faith. He had a chance, he had a chance with only a half dozen people in the room to see a resurrection. How cool is that? And it's your daughter nonetheless. How amazing, how powerful is that? He's had the opportunity to exercise and test and to expand, taste, and rely on trusting in Jesus in the most desperate moments of life and find that it was worth it. And this was an opportunity to change absolutely the rest of his life. He received so much better than what he asked. What is that one thing you would have asked God for before we were done today? He might say yes, he might say no, he might say wait. But I think what's on his heart I think what is reflected in his character and in the life of Jesus is that he wants to give you way more than that or something so much, so much better. Because he's better at giving than we are at asking. Prayer in Ephesians 3. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. He could do more than we ask or think. According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would receive glory in the church. I ask that you would receive glory in Gateway Church, in the lives of its people this morning, that we would be those who trust 
your character, in the goodness of your character, that those who ask and seek and knock are those who receive good things from the hand of our Lord and Savior. Help us to trust that. Help us to believe that and to look for that every day and every moment to your glory. Amen.